welcome to Offwatch, a podcast by the Ocean Race. Welcome to Offwatch. So far in this series, we've been hearing some incredible stories from the sailors at the heart of the race, where this week we're going to be hearing from those people who are bringing us those stories live from the racetrack. Amory Ross has been an onboard reporter with many editions of the race, and he's lining up for another one. And he's also responsible for a lot of the incredible drone shots that you will know from the last edition. In this interview, he talks us through how it was that he was able to capture those moments and where luck played its part. Plus, at the end, he gave us a rundown as to what life was like being in France and how the atmosphere over there training for the next edition is something quite spectacular. If you enjoy this interview, you can leave us a like and subscribe. In the meantime, enjoy. My guest this week is somebody that many fans of the ocean race and probably fans of sailing won't know, but you will know his work. Amory Ross has been an onboard reporter with three editions of the ocean race, and he's lining up for a fourth. Between that, he's also been bringing us stories from the America's Cup as well as adventures from all over the world. Now, the onboard reporter is the person who's able to bring us, those of us stuck on shore, close to the reality of what it means to take on this challenge. Technically not part of the sailing team, but every wave that crashes over the boat, every boiling hot doldrums drift, every freezing cold Southern Ocean blizzard, every hardship for the sailors is exactly the same for the OBR. It's just that they've got to hold a camera instead of a rope and they have to document everything. Amory, thank you very much uh, for talking to me today. Thank you for having me now. It's uh, it's great to be here. I've watched quite a few of these and... um... It's always something fun, informative that comes out of it. Well, okay, good. Well, there you go. We've set the bar high straight away. Um, I, the first question that I wanted to ask you was, was was basically about that. How do we, how should we think about the OBRs and how do you think about yourself? You've done all the miles. You've sailed through all the storms. And like I was saying in the introduction, you're not the one that's trying to make the boat go fast, but you're an integral part of the team. Do you consider yourself an ocean racer? I think to a certain degree you have to. You know, there are um, through three campaigns, uh, I think it's fair to say that there's no right or wrong way to do this job. There have been so many people from so many different backgrounds with so many strengths and and, um, just a variety of skill sets but I think the one common denominator, um, the one constant to being good at this uh, this work is is getting along with the group. You know, you have to have chemistry. You have to understand, to a certain degree at least, the sport. Um, and that's just on a very basic level. It doesn't require, um, you know, super uh, depth by any means. But you have to understand what they're talking about, what's happening around you. Uh, just to sort of, you know, know the race and, and the race course and the people and the players. Um, but I, I, to your point, I think the biggest thing that I've taken away is um, you're best at your job when you're able to, to maybe share the highs and lows, uh, to share the experiences with those that are around you. And it gives you real insight into to what they're thinking and what they're feeling. Uh, and that's, for me at least personally, has always been an important part of it. But I also think from a sailing perspective, um, it's good to invest in what you're doing. And I always felt like, um, in particular, sailors are are somewhat uh, quiet and reserved. And that's 
maybe more so offshore than inshore with something like the America's Cup. You know, people go sailing across oceans because they want to get away from cameras and they want to get away from the noise and, and they enjoy that remoteness and maybe disconnecting a little. But um, I always worked really hard at what I was doing uh, because I felt like it earned me currency to get something out of them. You know, if I was really good at managing my onboard uh, tasks, whether it was the food or the bailing or, or just kind of being there um, as a positive influence, uh, I had reason to get something from them. That kind of professional respect was really important. And uh, I, I do think you need to be a part of the team to maximize that concept. Has there been a point where the desire to capture that shot you know to kind of uh to get out in front of the danger and oh that's an amazing moment have you ever had a skipper or another crew member grab you pull you back and go no 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 (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure there have been times but that's i mean that's the appeal of the job you know you get to put yourself in those positions and uh i think we've all learned sailing these boats enough times that nothing ever happens once and so if you can go maybe halfway the first time maybe the second time you've earned that trust and they let you go a little farther uh and that in so many ways is what it's about it's it's just um, surrounding yourself with people that thrive in, in that moment and uh you don't want to be in a place where you can't can't capture it you know because you're you're not comfortable going forward to the the shrouds um, but uh, that's part of the boats too. You, you know, the Volvo 70s were, uh, by today's standards, you know, super unique. They were beasts of a, a boat. I mean, it was a real V8. Um, there was nothing covering you. The cockpit was wide open. They were really powerful and really wet. And so you had a lot of water uh, over the deck. And, and I mean, water at those speeds is like concrete. Um, that was removed a little bit with the Volvo 65s with the, the coach roof and the camera. And, and so you had more protection. The cockpit was a lot deeper. You were kind of capturing different things. Um, and, and obviously now with the IMOCA class, it's even farther gone. We're, we're all sort of huddled under a coach roof and it, the boat's going so fast that you don't even go outside until you've turned down really and slowed things down. So. But at the same time, the boat is slamming around and you've got to be um, able to handle the, the violence on board in a different way. And so um, this morning, you know, we spent a lot of time at the gym. It's, it's mostly about flexibility and mobility and no longer like that brute strength. And I guess full circle, your first question about do you consider yourself an ocean racer? Uh, am I capable of, of being somebody on this boat um, pulling rope and, and doing things that require real skill? No, not, not at all. But you do certainly have to be able to, to exist and to survive um, in a way that allows you to, to do your work and to do your job. And you're, you, so you're going to the gym. You, you're, you're putting in physical training as well. Unfortunately, to, yeah. you know, you know to, 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 to do all this. I mean, how, how easy is it on the latest edition um, with the mockers? You know, the 70 you were saying was quite wet. The 65 took that back a bit. But hey, you ask any of the sailors who did the last edition on the 65, they described it as a wet boat. So it's, you know, when it pulled back a bit, but not by much. <laughs> the Amokas does seem like a little bit of a step change. Um, I wonder whether, have you had a chance to kind of think, this is how I'm going to be able to film this, or this is how I'm going to be able to tell that story. You know, it was all the drones last time or, you know, whatever. Where are you really interested to kind of 
um, be and to be bringing us those moments with the Amokas? You know, what, what's getting you excited? The, the whole concept of, of these boats is built around, you know, sort of um, setting it up and sending it. And, and you do everything. It's all on furlers. You're inside the boat. So we, we've certainly, to use your words, stepped away from what we've traditionally been looking at. Uh, in my experience so far, you know, a few transatlantics, a couple of them long ones, so much of, of the boat that we're now sailing is really going to test the sailor's mental capacity. Um, you know, just living inside, uh, basically a bubble, uh, pushing when you can't see very much going on outside the, the margin of gains, you know, is back to, um, very small amounts and, and it's really going to be. Uh, how hard you're pushing and how hard you, you know, you choose to um, really be aggressive or not. And obviously the design component is a big one. And so a lot of what the team is doing right now is focused on, um, you know, uh, data and design prowess and experimentation. And, and so that, of course, is very interesting. And it doesn't really matter. Let me, let, let, hang on, let me just interject. Wait. Let me just interject because I'm always fascinated by this. So there's there's all this data. Obviously, at the moment, there's decisions that you can be made or the team you know, as a whole can make about whether we go down left or right with the design process. Are you now being careful, like an America's Cup team would be, about what you put out to the public? Are you, are you physically holding some things back? Uh, I wouldn't say holding things back. I mean, we're, we're filming everything. Everything is, is being covered. Um, and obviously there's a grace period where, you know, photos or videos of new foil concepts, uh, we can't necessarily show the way that we would like to. Um, but like anything, the boat is out there. And, and when we go sailing for the ocean race Europe, we're going to have the new foils in the boat and there are going to be helicopters and cameras. And so, um, unlike an America's cup campaign where you're sort of uh, training in secret for two, three years, um, and you've got spies and such. We don't really have that luxury. I mean, the boat's on a, a dock here, and, and if anybody wanted to go and look at it, they, they could. But for sure, what, what's happening here at American Concept in France on the, the screens, you know, the designs for the new boat, the build of the new boat that's going on about 45 minutes south of here, um, uh, you know, all of that is for sure very secret. And we want to hold those cards as close to our chest for as long as we can because there is a competitive advantage to it. And um, and the flip side of that, of course, and what makes the Amoka class so interesting from a storytelling standpoint is that the boats that you build uh, and the design that you implement at the end of the day is only as, as valuable as the people that are using it. You know, and, and you look at the Vendee fleet and it was uh, it was won by an old boat, you know, with um, uh, with Yannick, and and obviously he wasn't the first across the line. But there were a lot of older generation boats that were were very much in the hunt up until the the later stages, and so uh, you still have to navigate the race course, and you still have to effectively design a boat around a race course, you know, upwind, downwind, reaching, heavier, lighter, all of those same things come in. So it it is still, at the end of the day, about the sailors designing something that they want to create. Well, let's talk technology then. Because like you say, uh, in the 65s, we, we, you know, the drones have been around for a while, but it was a big thing in the last edition. Everybody had a drone. Everybody, you know, all the OBRs got pretty good at flying them towards the end. It was, it was, it was quite impressive. Um, 
where, you know, when that was introduced in the last edition, were you thinking, oh, God, another bit of tech I've got to get my head around. I'm pretty good with just a point and shoot. Or were you sort of rubbing your hands together thinking, great? No, absolutely. I think anybody who gets um, into this sort of position finds new technology and new equipment really rewarding. And uh, it's it's the same across all technology. It's not just drones. But I mean, I remember the Puma race, my schedule, my routine was more or less built around the sun and daylight. You know, I, I couldn't film at night. Um, cameras at that point really struggled with low light. And, and much like the arrival of drones, you know, cameras have gotten really good at filming at night. And when you talk to somebody, why do you come back? You've already done the race once. W- what about it? brings you back you know are there any more stories to tell um obviously there are you know new classes and new sailors and, and every race is different but for sure one thing that would excite anybody like myself or the other obrs is the advances in equipment and what drones can do now what cameras can do now i mean you're able to tell stories that just three years ago four years ago you never would have been able to tell because the drone can go that much faster or the camera has a zoom that's that much greater or you know all of these things make capturing images that you've never been able to to get before totally possible and that's really exciting uh, i think for sure sure you know learning New technology is hard and, and the learning curve is steeper for some than others. And uh, I, you know, as somebody, dare I say, a veteran or somebody older, sometimes struggle with a lot of the new tech. But um, <laughs> you get there in the end through repetition and practice, as you said. I mean, by the end of a nine-month race, uh, you've had some pretty good stick time on the drone and, and all the things that maybe a year ago didn't make a lot of sense start making sense. And Um, it's so cool when you see some of the opportunities, uh, that these new toys present. Well, did did you, did you know how far people were going to be taking the drones? Because I remember back at the start of the last edition of the race in Lisbon and I was, I was on board on one of the boats inshore. It was a very nice day and we're going out just, I think they were just checking out some, some of their latest sales, just double checking everything was all right. And the OBR was flying the drone off the back, bringing it in for a landing. And this must have been, it must have been eight knots. And it was flat calm. And the OBR was really pleased with themselves when they landed it. And they were like, oh, that's great, that's great, that's great. And that was where we were. (laughs) And then you get to the Southern Ocean and it was 45 knots, but it's going in the right direction. We'll just chuck it up and go for it. You know, is, is that a fair description of the it felt like you guys, the OBRs, were as surprised as we were as to actually how good and how maybe brave is the right word you got with using them. You get pretty cavalier. I think confidence can can (laughs) probably run away from you a little bit too. Uh, We've all had some crashes or horror stories. Uh, But the the problem is once the drone gets up, you know, getting it back um, and and preserving your hardware is – is of course a priority, but particularly when it comes to like the Southern Ocean or, or anytime you've really captured something special, uh, you want the footage more than you want the drone. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> you, you tend to arrive at a place where it's just like get it down at all costs and, um, you know, material uh, uh, allegiances. You, you never, you don't look at the thing as, a, as something that matters when all you really need is the footage inside. So launching and retrieving can get a little rough, uh, a bit cowboy. But you're right. I mean, it, the progression of, of skill and proficiency with drones has gotten a lot better, as has the control, you know, the ability to 
um, more precisely control the drone and uh, and that's made a big difference too. I mean, the the first second generation DJI Phantoms were um, were far less uh, nuanced than than the new ones with their settings and customization, and you can really dial a, a drone in for a boat. Um, and, and that's a you know getting like the way I would use a drone now versus the way that somebody else would use a drone completely different. And so when you get it, the first thing you have to do is kind of work your way through all the settings and turn almost everything off. I mean, you're flying basically manually um, and you, you, you know, slow everything down. And uh, for example, like the return to home function, everyone, if anything happens, the drone always goes back to where you launched it from, which is a problem when you're sailing at 20 knots because you launched it three miles back that way and and uh you just have to disable all of these things but you learn sort of through osmosis and and the confidence grows slowly with every every launch and retrieval and then you do arrive at a place where you end up just throwing a thing out of a companion way for better or worse let's talk creativity then because this is something that's always um it's always made it very clear to me that ultimately you have to train to be a good OBR. It's not a case of pretty handy with a camera. I can jump on board, you know, and, and the way that I kind of think about it is, you know, you take a look at sort of motor racing and you go to a track. That's the corner. That's the corner where the cars normally come off. So we need the camera here. And you know that because that's always the corner for the last 20 years. I think a lot of people, if they thought about the OBR's role, the, they would do pretty well in capturing some good images, telling some good stories on day one, maybe day two. But to keep up that level of creativity throughout the entire race, how do you do it? What discipline do you bring to yourself so that you're not just telling the same story every day? It's a good question. And and you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, all that nonsense about cameras and Sony and Panasonic and this and that, the reality and these boats in particular, the Amokas have reinforced it more than ever, um, is that it's not about the camera. It's it's about the story. And, and there's that saying that the best camera that you have is the one that's on you at the time. And it's totally true. I mean, you could use an iPhone uh, and and do just as well, you know, from a storytelling perspective, obviously, technically, the images would need a little more and whatnot. But a story is about the people, the characters, the, the journey, you know, and, and you have your your shot list. You have your, okay, this leg, we want to talk about this. Maybe the doldrums, you know, talk about how hot it is, eating, whatever. They're like the, the low-hanging fruits um, that you and your comms team come up with or maybe the race puts forward certain topics that you have to cover but you couldn't be more right. I mean, after 15 days, you've already done all of that. You've already told this story. You've already told that story. How do you fill the time, so to speak? But um, it's so easy to do because there's always something going on. And so what I would do is I had a like a pad of paper, wet notes in my pocket. And I spent a lot of time just listening, you know, and um, trying to understand what sailors are saying, what sailors are feeling. Uh, and this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before. Do you consider yourself an ocean racer? Like, I think you have to be comfortable on board, understanding what people are, are doing and what they're thinking and, and how, how they're feeling. You have to have insight because when you hear something that makes you think, oh, like I, I sort of know what he means by that, but I want to know more. Or you get a really interesting exchange between two sailors about 
trying to decide between the next sale. You know, it, it doesn't have to be something uh, incredibly creative, but like maybe it's about the way those two interact. Maybe it's about their history. Maybe it's about the sales. Um, can you educate somebody on, on the complexity of choosing the next sale? You know, why is that important? Uh, there are so many different ways to approach everything that somebody says or does. And what are the challenges? You know, what's, what are the goals? How do you overcome those obstacles? What's most pressing? Like all these sort of things, I just constantly ask myself and I just write it down. And eventually I'd get to a point where um, something would warrant a question and I'd ask that question and then film some B-roll and you have your three minute, four minute story right there. It doesn't require a ton of creativity. It just requires like a very acute sense for what makes these guys work and what happens on board and what you're surrounded by, you know, the stories kind of fall in your lap. Um, uh, and sometimes it would happen at nine o'clock in the morning. And some, sometimes it would happen, you know, 30 minutes before you had to send a video. But if you were patient, you'd always get something really good and really interesting uh, every day with, without needing to worry about just like putting something off the boat or, or filling, like I said, filling airtime. I, I can imagine it's like the worst thing for creativity is the is being forced to come up with something you know you've got a deadline you have to sort of do something it's really interesting to hear you talk about the way in which you would just try and sort of you know let those little moments kind of bubble to the surface i wonder in the three editions that you've done has there been any of those more subtle moments not the gigantic wave crashing across the boat not the big brooch not the big winning moment or whatever but those little subtle moments have there been any of those little moments where you you can think i still remember that and i i'm so glad i caught it and it was such a little thing but it's still a moment that i'm really pleased that i was able to bring to the public they always lead to to bigger stories you know uh like i remember I think it was on the leg to um, to Abu Dhabi with Alva Medica. Uh, we had one guy, um, Ryan Houston, who was particularly difficult to wake up. And um, he's, he's, I hope he doesn't watch this, but um, because I don't like calling people out by names. But I remember there was there was one video. I mean, he just he couldn't get up, and he really struggled with like the midday watch change. And that story led to a piece about watch changes. And I filmed like a 24 hour cycle with time lapses and I'm just trying to, to like encapsulate what somebody has to go through over the course of 24 hours and why the routine, what, what everyone talks about being very routine can often be so difficult. And in that instance, I think it was just, it was so hot and nobody was sleeping and, and people were getting thrown off of their routine. But that all started because Houston, I have I mean, so many videos of him just like rubbing his eyes and, and he just couldn't get up. And, um, and, and so you start to pick up on those things and you start to think about, well, why is he having such a hard time? You know, what is it about what's going on around us right now that's proving so difficult and so um, different to last leg or, or last race? You know, is it the boats? Is it the routine? Is it... The, the people who watch partner or whatever it is. I mean, you can really start to, to get into the uh, nitty gritty, but nothing is, is too insignificant. If there's anything that I've learned, it's everything happens for a reason and, and you can kind of peel the layers back and you can, that story can be as big or as small as you want it to be. One of the things that feels like it has changed. Uh, and, you know, we, we mentioned the drones before and you talked about flying them. 
and I think that's also been a big part of this, is um, the quality of the technology. Really interesting you mentioned Knight. As, a, as somebody who doesn't work with a camera, I never would have thought about that. But it feels like we're able to film, not just with Knight, but, but so much off the boat. And the drone in particular giving us so many things about... And I don't, I don't mean a view of the boat from off the boat, but I mean the things that are actively off the boat. Um, you know, the encounters that you guys have had with wildlife that would be from a shaky camera on the deck. Oh, I think it was, you know, third wave of over, whereas now you can hover over these things and and get them, you know... Yes, you're here to document the sailing and everything else, but also that whole life in the ocean and, and all those amazing things that we, we do share the ocean with, does that give you as much of a thrill? Do you look for those moments? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, the drone, to your, <clears throat> your point, is great at capturing the boat doing 40 knots, you know, or whatever it may be in a, a very rare circumstance, and, and that's exciting and all, but... From a storytelling perspective, it, it's incredible at sort of placing the boat somewhere. You know, if you're going around a headland or um, all the islands and the, the shorelines or not, you know, just the vastness of the ocean. Uh, there's never been a tool that has been able to sort of place a small boat in a big space as well as that view from way back there. Uh, and then, yes, 100 percent, the ability to capture the wildlife that we always talk about. Uh, and you know, <laughs> you, you said it perfectly when you're trying to film something into the sun and there's glare on the water and, and you're zooming in on this long lens and the boat slamming around, you sort of get a splash or this, or maybe a fan or something like that. It's really hard to, to show what, uh, what we see and, and the drone. I mean, the last race in particular, um, with Vessus 11th hour racing, uh, off of the Solomon Islands, we had an incredible uh, feeding frenzy of, of whales. And I, I think the race itself has used it a bunch, so um, you're probably familiar with it. But we had – it was incredible. You, you filmed uh, the whole thing. It was like sundown. We were kind of cruising. It was really nice conditions. And, and Nick Dana poked his head through the hatch, and he was like, oh, is this something you know happening on the water up ahead? And, and hurriedly put the thing together and got it in the air with real, like, no idea as to what we were about to see. And um, looking down at this boil of, of fish, and uh, at the time, we thought it was just fish and whales. Uh, because that's all we could see from the deck, you know, and, and I had like four guys looking over my shoulder at my screen, <laughs> uh, in, in front of me. And it was incredible to watch. And then what was even cooler was later when we were back down below, uh, pulling off the 4k footage from the card and looking at all, you could see sharks, you could see dolphin, you could see big fish like tuna, um, not just the, the little fish that the whales were going after. And to take it a step further, you're, again, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the chain of events that that kind of kicked off um, regarding the species of whale, the time of year that we captured that, uh, all the different fish that were in that community, um, you know, scientists were really interested in. And there was, uh, I think, a, a journal release that came out of that um, uh, you, know, you look at our responsibility now as uh, as stewards of the ocean and, 
Um, I think we all love the ocean race and we all love going back on, on these trips because we get to immerse ourselves with a, you know, a part of this planet that is so valuable and so meaningful. And if we as storytellers have the opportunity to capture some of that and to show some of its beauty, uh, to the rest of the world, you know, that's a huge responsibility. And then on, on top of that, with the science component I was talking about, I mean, uh, in 2021, citizen scientists are, are a real thing, and we've done quite a lot of that with 11th Hour Racing on board the IMOCA. Uh, we've got, courtesy of the Ocean Race, we've got the water sampler uh, pulling, you know, ocean samples every, uh, I think it's, it's processing them every five minutes that looks at salinity and oxygen levels and water temp. Um, and then, of course, with whale sightings or animals, um, in particular along the coastal regions, where you've got an abundance of, of obstacles, you know, marine strikes, um, fishing endangerment, all, all the kind of things that people are really talking about right now. Uh, there's a there's a real onus to be able to capture that and and pass that information along to relevant authorities, and and it does uh, do. I mean, like I was saying, that the journal report that came from that, we saw a whale. It was a rorqual whale, and I, I think in the end they concluded it was a say whale. Um, spelled S-E-I, uh, and it was highly unusual for it to be in that region that time of year. Um, and if, you know, little did we know we were just filming a, a cool sunset whale experience, but the value in something um, like that to, to other people who know a lot more about those things is real. And uh, going back to like what brings you back, I mean, that whole component of being able to to do you know tangible good uh, to capture real data uh, in the ocean now with the tools that we have at our uh, disposal is is really important. And it's, it's of course it's a good lesson for all of us, isn't it? And I know that eleventh hour racing are doing a lot of this. This idea of you know if you're out on the water and you see something, you might not know the significance of it. So if you can take a photograph or at the very least jot it down when, where, and then, you know, r report it back. And, and I think that, you know, all of us are used to going on a boat and, and we've, we've, you know, the majority of us have been lucky to see some cool sightings, maybe a you know, nice dolphin. And all of us have that terrible, blurred, salt-on-the-lens picture of, well, you can't quite see the dolphin because I clicked and it just jumped back in, but you can kind of see a sort of a grey thing <laughs> and all the rest of it. You know, as somebody who does have the skill, hard-earned, does have the skill to capture those moments. You know, you mentioned that feeding frenzy and all of us remember that. I mean, that was an amazing shot. Do you, you know, have you had encounters like that with with dolphins and things? Like that? I mean, do, do, does it happen as as uh, easily for you as, <laughs> as I'm hoping it might? You know, have you had those moments where you've just been able to enjoy those... Uh, that life in the ocean just moving along with you and just sort of enjoying your presence as much as you are there. Yeah, I, we're lucky in that, uh, you know, a lot of the time we go sailing, we see things. And and the shame, of course, is that uh, over the course of these three races, you, you see less now, for sure. Um, and that's not only just the, the big mammals, but the birds, uh, the toll 
of our circumstances is probably very obvious to those of us that spend a lot of time out there. Um, but it's, it's one of the greatest things about what we do, you know, is getting to see these animals in their natural habitat and the wild. Uh, and, and you do try and capture as, as much as possible. Um, but it's not easy. We actually, on our overnighter last night or two nights ago, uh, we had a huge pot of dolphin here with us in, uh, in the Bay of Biscay. And, uh, I think there's like a, um, a faction of people who laugh at, at those of us that get really excited and enthusiastic about dolphins and things like that in the ocean. But um, uh, fortunately, the group on board this boat and, and uh, you know, we're all very excited to be with 11th Hour and, and, and the value that they bring to the sport in the ocean. And we're all equally as excited to see those kind of animals. Um, so uh, it's usually particularly like a day like uh sunday you know everybody was up watching all the dolphins and they're swimming around the foil and um there's still a, a lot of, of wonderful uh life out there to, to watch and observe and um yeah as a storyteller it's just my job to make sure that we capture as much of it as possible but it is hard because the other problem is you just want to watch and my job is not to watch. My job is to film. Uh, so it's, it's always an internal struggle with being able to, to use my own eyes uh, and enjoy it for myself and, and the responsibility to capture it and share it with people who aren't as lucky to be out there as we are. Well, listen, I... I... It's, it's fascinating to hear you talk about it. And I know that you're incredibly busy. You are preparing for the Ocean Race Europe and, of course, the next edition of the Ocean Race as well. I can hear that, you know, it's morning where you are and people are suddenly coming in. So I know you've got... It's uh, <laughs> there you go, it's right. coffee time in France. <laughs> <laughs> right, I will let you... Hole. Yeah. I will let you get back to it. Um, keep up the good work. And, yeah, it's great to hear your enthusiasm about giving us the next set of stories uh, for the next edition. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Niall. It's a pleasure to be here. Appreciate it. It's an amazing place where you are, isn't it's it? Incredible. It's like, it's so cool. Like, yeah, Jean Carnot, and then outside the window here, we got the, the castle um, over there, which is amazing. And then our boat, is that's our rig right there. So we just go out through there and straight into the Bay of Biscay, and it's you're in offshore conditions very quickly. It's been very good. Yeah, man. It's such I, 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 it's such a nice place. And yeah, I, I just the atmosphere when, you, when you're down there. There's those few little sailing hotspots on there around the world where you just you come out spending a couple of days there. You're just buzzing. It's so true. You know, class 40s over there. We're sort of the only IMOCA sailing right now. But before the Vendee, it was just like every day you'd go out and you'd see sails everywhere you know and and like you said between port la here lorient um, la trinité sur mer is just a, a crazy amount of activity and and enthusiasm and just knowledge you know for offshore sailing and racing in general is is huge it's a privilege to be surrounded by it all and the food and the, and the wine is one thing but the um <laughs> the, the sailing prowess is another yeah do you do you like i'm really bad in those situations i just let myself go full fanboy mode and i'm gawping at all the boats and i'm pointing out all the famous sailors <laughs> oh, there's no question you have to i mean it, everyone here is the same way we were on a charlie and i went on a run yesterday and uh, uh vincent ryu walked by and we we're like oh, you're they're idols they're heroes and what's so great about it is that's what kids you know grow up idolizing and 
and they start sailing a mini when they're old enough and they start, it's not like in the States, you know, you kind of pursue team sports and um, it takes you more towards organized athletics. Whereas here, everyone is very individually focused and it's like, all you want is a class 40 and then class 40 turns into a multi 50 and then multi 50 becomes an Imoca and you, you grow up with posters of Eric Taberly and Francois Gabar and all these guys on your wall. And, and they do, you know, if they had like trading cards, like baseball cards, I'm sure they would have sailors, um, more than most. It's, it's really incredible the way they, uh, revere the, the legends of the sport here. It, it's, it's so bizarre compared to everywhere else in the world. And I mean, as, as, as a, as a Brit, we don't have that. And I remember as a young, young lad, I did the Tour de France out of a while and we did it on like a student budget. I mean, budget. I mean, there was no money. There was no nothing at all. And at one point we just ran out of food, just didn't have any food. And we pulled into this harbor and we're like, what the hell are we going to do? And we went to a shop and we said, look, we, we don't have any food. Is there any way that you can give us some food? And the guy said, you know, you, you know, you don't look like you're dying. I'm sorry, but you know, I, you know, I can't. And and we mentioned, we said, oh well, you know, we're sailors in the Tour de France of Well, and he Tour de France of Well, <gasps> and he gave us a shopping trolley, and he said, if it goes in the shopping trolley, if it fits in the shopping trolley, you can take it for free. So you know, pasta and bread, but it was that was all we needed to say that we're here, sailors, and we're sailing in this amazing race. I've had the same thing in Newport. In fairness, I, I I've had that same feeling that you know, it feels like everybody is, this is what we do, we care about it. And it, it's what's made the place a, a great home for me to go back to. And it's also, I think the race has really enjoyed being around people that, that care for um, the participants and the, you know, the staff as well, uh, so. Yeah, and I, I, I just love the fact that you can't, you can't put your finger on it, but you can just feel it. You can just feel, you're like, oh, this, you know, where this is, you know, are they, everyone's just, just really, you know, some people like the spectacle, but these people really care for the sailing, you know, and, and, and that's and that's always been my thing is like, oh, you really you, you went a tiny bit more sheet tension that, that that's, yeah, that's my the conversations that are that are at your disposal. <laughs> yeah. You know, you might go to dinner and sit next to Bauer Becking and you want to know something about what happened seven races ago. Oh, I was a kid. I was watching that whip red. And, you know, yeah. why did you? <laughs> go around there and like you have access to people like that and the same is true here uh, just like i was saying i mean you're even out for a run and you could pass somebody that um you know you have some memory of or some significant feeling that you're you've associated with as a, uh, it's just incredible uh but it's the people i think you're right i mean it's just kind of being immersed around the community and and uh that wonder of like knowing who you might have a chance to talk to yeah, I mean, I mean, put yourself in my shoes here. We're doing this series. I mean, that is, do you know what I mean? Like when you say, "Oh, seven editions ago," and this, other, that is, that is what I get to do. Now, <laughs> it's I, just so... there's, there's a reason I'm, I'm always happy being behind the camera, and it's because I know I'm not nearly as interesting as 99 percent of the other people you have on the show. So that's not what I meant. For entertaining my one percent. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed this episode and keep an eye open on our social media channels where we'll be announcing our future guests and you can submit the questions that you want to get answers to. If you enjoyed this, then subscribe for many more and we'll see you in the future.